Hello, everybody. This is Mrs. Demboya, and welcome back to the Drama Llama Classroom podcast. Today, we are having a special interview with a member of the armed forces, and today we are focusing on the United States Army. So, without further ado, here is our interview. All right, so here today we are interviewing Major Kushma. She is in the United States Army and she is a chemical officer. Um, can you tell us some more about yourself? Hi, so yes, I'm Major Kushma. I am a major in the United States Army. I've been serving collectively since 1997. Wow. I believe so I guess that puts me at 23 years and counting I originally joined through the Army Reserves and then a little bit after 9-11 I switched over to active duty so there was no full break in service so it's just collectively been 23 years if my math is correct okay and have you had the same um, job the whole time no so I originally enlisted in the military. So that's the other thing. I enlisted and later became an officer. So I enlisted in the military as a admin specialist. So I worked in the personnel shop and then I wanted to become an NCO and my promotion points were extremely high for the personnel area. So someone suggested that I switch to the chemical corps because I was one of the only lower enlisted soldiers in the unit that already had a GT score and an ST score high enough to switch over to chemical. Uh, and I would not have to retake uh, the ASVAB or wouldn't have to go to what they call fast class, which is basically a class that you can take to improve your uh, GT scores. So for anyone listening, if you don't do so well on the ASVAB after you're in the military, there are opportunities to raise your scores later if you want to re-enlist into different MOSs. So either way, that's what I did. I crossed over to the chemical floor because it had lower cutoff scores for NCOs. And then I became a chemical NCO. And eventually I went to officer candidate school and became a chemical officer. I didn't request chemical, so I always say I didn't choose the chemical life, the chemical life <laughs> chose me as an officer, but that's what I got. I ended up, since I was already trained in chemical, the Army just kept me in the chemical corps, and so I've been chemical ever since. I think I've been chemical for a little bit over 15 years now. So you've kind of run the gamut on everything. It's perfect. You've, you've done reserves, you've done enlisted and officers, so you have perspectives on all of that. That's wonderful. Yes. So I'm one of those ones when when the kids go to basic training, you'll hear the speeches where someone will say, you never know, in this audience is the future a future first sergeant or a future company commander. I was that one. <laughs> in, in my audience of basic trainee recruits, that was a future company commander, so to speak, or a future officer. So I've, I've held the rank of E1 through E6, and then second lieutenant to major. Wow. So just to go back a little bit, how did you enjoy your time in the reserves? The reserves was okay but I was unfulfilled. And so after I finished college, I went on and went active duty. Because I joined, so I basically, the funny story, I joined the military because I was bored. I wasn't challenged and I was already in college. I was my freshman year in college and I wasn't 
I didn't feel challenged enough in college and I was bored. So I just walked into a recruiter's office and asked her, her name was Sergeant Guy, and I asked her why she had a job. And she told me, what? I, I don't understand. What do you mean? And I just pretty much said, I don't understand if the military is such a great organization to be in. Why do you need recruiters? Why do you have a job? I don't know what she told me, but it, it must have worked. <laughs> <laughs> because here I am, but I was in the Army Reserve because I was in college. And then I just wasn't challenged enough because the Army Reserve wasn't what my head, my brain thought it was going to be. And different people who I had met said, oh, well, what you're looking for or what you are envisioning is on active duty. And so eventually, once I graduated college, matter of fact, the year I graduated college, I went on and went active duty. And then that's where my, and they were right, what I was looking and searching for and my pursuit of being in the military was actually on active duty. So what made you choose the Army out of all the branches? Because she was the one who answered the question the best. (laughs) (laughs) That worked. I wish, I really wish, because I tell this story all the time, I really wish I could remember what she said, but I had had went to the Marine office. It was a a row of these offices in St. Louis, Missouri. I went to the Marine office, and I went to... uh, I want to say I did go to the Air Force office. No, I take that back. It was just the Marines and the Army office that was right next to each other. The Air Force, I was not interested in Air Force because my 17-year-old brain (laughs) thought that you had to fly. You had to fly. (laughs) And I'm afraid of heights. And again, my 17-year-old brain kind of knew for the Navy you would have to be in water. And me and water don't get along very well. I get seasick very easily. So that's why the two choices were Marine and Army. And the Army recruiter just answered the question better. Gotcha. Very nice. So then... Even though I do know now, <laughs> wait, I do know now, though, that those two things about the Army and the Navy are misconceptions. But again, at 17 years old, I didn't know any better. <laughs> so what was basic training like for you then? Basic training for me... <laughs> really not a fair answer to give in 2020 (laughs) because I've been a company commander of basic training and I actually work at basic training right now as a battalion XO and so basic training now is pretty different from my basic training then so I would rather just kind of give a broad stroke overview of what basic training is like altogether is that okay yeah go for it okay So basic training now is approximately, yeah, it's 10 weeks of training. It's a fairly controlled environment with your drill sergeants. There's three phases to training, red phase, white phase, blue phase. During your red phase, that is your major core classes, classwork, and some very basic team building skills because we have to be able to break down some of the knowledge and the things that so that civilians have come into and help get them institutionalized into the Institute of the Army and get them really working more of a, as a team and less as an individual. So that's really what the first two weeks are about. That's why you see the things that television tends to glorify of the yelling and the screaming. <laughs> and it's really about not breaking a person down, but I need to break down the ideals of individualism 
that has been embedded into you for your 17, 18, 19, 20 years of life and get you thinking really, really about the importance of being a team and working as a collective. Then your white faith is pretty much all weapons familiarization, essentially. Uh, and you go to the ranges and you learn how to shoot your rifle in several, several different ways. And then there's still classes mixed in. And then your blue phase is where everything is kind of culminated and comes together. And that's more of what we would call the fun part because you go to the field, basically camping, for like three, three or four days. You do road marches and things like that. Now, all throughout basic training, there is an overlay of physical training that happens. And with it, you will, co- you will gradually build up to being able to do these long road marches that you'll end up doing in red phase. Uh, so yeah, that for the most part, that's what basic training is like now. Gotcha. So what are the new physical requirements for basic training since that just changed in the last year, didn't it? Right, so the Army is still in the process of doing the ACFT or implementing the ACFT. COVID and uh, financial resources has kind of slowed it down a little bit for full implementation of the ACFT in the military, and that's the Army Combat Fitness Test. But in basic training, you will do the ACFT. You just need to pass it. And the way that the ACFT is laid out, there are three different standards to it. I apologize, I can't remember the exact, but I think it's like a gold standard, a black standard, dare I say a silver standard. I apologize if I'm I'm wrong because we haven't fully implemented it as permanent party members. But either way, you just need to pass it. That's all, you just have to pass the ACFT to graduate basic training. And so the events, you're, you're taught the events and how to actually do the training from the very beginning, from like day two of basic training, they start going over the different things that you'll be facing during the ACFT. Um, and we also help feed and give you the right nutrition to help really turn you into an athlete. So the Army has shifted more to the soldier as an athlete sort of programming. Uh, and then you you have to do the sprint drag carry. So it's like a little short sprint. And then you will drag a, a weight for the same short distance. You'll do like a shuttle run and then you'll carry kettlebells in your hand for the same amount of distance you'll have to do a leg tuck I want to say it's three legs it's two or three leg tucks I can't remember exactly there's a ball toss in it you still have push-ups but it's the T push-up and then you still have your two mile run and then you also have a deadlift you have to do a deadlift also so those are pretty much the events of the ACFT okay Um, And I know you also work in the fitness field. Do you have any tips for anyone that's looking to try to get some practice in with that before they leave for basic training on what to practice or what movements to do? Oh, sure, sure, sure. I would say if you are preparing to go to basic training, work on your weak spot. As as a fitness trainer, I would definitely tell you to work on your weak spot. If running is already your thing, And you don't even have to run to pass because you'll get lots of running while you're in basic training. (laughs) I say don't focus on the running. If if you are naturally a runner, 
but you're weak and you have weak upper body strength, I would start working on upper body strength type of thing. So some of the things that I would recommend folks do um, is dips. Just get a chair. You don't have to have a dip bar or anything like that. Just get a chair and work on building your tricep muscles by doing dips. Also, start working on doing push-ups. You don't even have to do full push-ups. You just want to develop that upper body strength. So you can put your knees and toes on the ground and start practicing doing 10 to 15 knee or four-point push-ups every single day, just about, uh, to help build that upper body strength, get those chest muscles activated, as well as get those biceps going. And then, especially for like the leg tuck, the leg tuck, requires core strength so really learning how to activate your core not only in physical training but pretty much in everything you do will help tighten your core so of course doing planks and things like that will help if you have access to a pull-up bar you don't even have to do pull-ups just work on doing the hang from a pull-up bar and actually activating your shoulder muscles and your lats that would really help. And then if you are a person that is not very good at running, then I would recommend at least doing shuttle sprints. And then start doing shuttle sprints where you're carrying something. Because just doing shuttle sprints alone will help translate over into the two-mile run that you do uh, at the end of the ACFT. But because you have the sprint drag carry, doing shuttle sprints and laterals, basically football drills, will help you. So that's what I would recommend. Okay, perfect. Thank you. So um, going back to your time in, so what kind of places are you stationed at and do you get to choose where you get stationed at? So everything in the Army is pretty much, it depends. <laughs> we don't say it depends because we're trying to be super vague. We say that it depends because no one story is the same, which is why I didn't want to say what basic training was like when I first came in, because 20 years later, it looks quite different. So with that, you kind of, sort of get a choice, meaning you get to select where you may want to go out of a list of options. So let's, let's take me, for instance, as a chemical soldier, almost every unit in the military has a slot for or a position for a chemical soldier. So I have a lot of options to go. I have a lot of options to choose from. But say I have a family member that is an exceptional, uh, they call them EFMP. They're in the exceptional family members program. So that means they have particular medical um, things that need to take, that need to be looked after. So they may not be able to go to certain duty stations because that duty station may not be able to cater to their family member's needs. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you have lots of places you can go based on your MOS. So again, for chemical, I can go practically anywhere. But if I was an ADA soldier, I'm not going to be able to go everywhere because every post doesn't have ADA units. If I was an ADA soldier, I know for sure that I would probably go to either Fort Bliss, Texas, Fort Sill, Oklahoma, Fort Benning, Georgia, things like that. I would probably go to Germany. Or, or Japan. So you kind of know based off of where these particular units are. And then as a chemical soldier, I know where our brigades are. So if I didn't specifically 
go, I mean, if I didn't go to a general unit that just has a general chemical position, if I wanted to specifically go to a chemical unit, then I know that I'm going to go to Fort Hood, Fort Bliss, Fort um, Virginia up at Fort Belvoir, I think it is. So that's kind of how it works for the different MOSs. And you'll get those options will get laid down and laid out to you. The same way that your MOS, based off of your ASVAB, will help determine what your what list of MOSs you can pick from. So I know you mentioned a couple of um, other countries. Do you get a choice in that? Or for some people that might not want to go overseas, do they get that option to not go overseas? Or is it, as they say, the needs of the Army? It is the needs <laughs> of the Army. However, it's been a while since I've, I've gotten asked like personally been exposed to it but the way that it was when I first came in as enlisted was I had to select three duty three stateside duty stations and one overseas duty station I don't know if it's still like that now because again it's been 23 years since I went through the accessions process (laughs) but that's kind of what happens and then there are options sometimes when you re-enlist here's another way that you can specifically pick where you go when you when it's time to re-enlist you can re-enlist for a duty station uh and then there are options that they may present to you like let's just say korea they present korea to you which almost every brand new soldier in the army will get offered korea i highly recommend you take it but whatever Um, (laughs) but they may offer korea and something may come up that is preventing you from going to korea so say exceptional family members program you can turn it down but just understand by you turning it down you really are now going to be at the needs of the Army. Anytime the Army offers you something and you turn it down, you are definitely going to be put at the bottom of the kind of needs of the Army list. So it's very important to have an idea of where you want to go. And I always tell, so it's harder when you're a young soldier, but once you start moving up the ranks to like NCO or becoming an officer, I highly recommend people have a plan for their military career that way, when things are, options are presented to you, you'll have a very short window to respond. So when options are presented to you, you kind of know which way you want to go. Gotcha. And so also the way it's kind of the overseas tours work, some overseas tours, I can speak the best on Korea because I was stationed in Korea. I haven't been stationed in Germany or uh, Italy or Japan, but I know people who have. But either way, certain tours are what they call accompanied tours or unaccompanied tours. So Korea, for instance, you can get a one-year unaccompanied tour. That means you don't bring your family. You go, you do one year, boom, you come back to the States. You can do a company tours where you bring your family with you. And then those accompany tours usually average between two to three years. And so that's how the overseas tours work. And uh, Alaska and Hawaii are also considered overseas because they're not in the contiguous United States. Okay, gotcha. So when talking with that, um, so how does deployment work? I know in the Navy they have like shore duty and sea duty. Do you, does the Army have a part where for so long you are deploy, deployable or non-deployable? Or are you always able to deploy? So your your personal status is what will make you non-deployable, okay. essentially. So say you have a particular medical condition. 
You mm-hmm. can have a medical condition that will make you non-deployable. You'll have to go through a med board for them to say that you're fit for, for duty. You're just non-deployable. So, for instance, one of the things that may make you non-deployable, actually, I had this problem. I was taking Tramadol. Mm-hmm. Well, Tramadol is one of those medications that is very hard to get when you're in a deployed, in a deployed status. So it made me non-deployable. So I now had to go back to my medical professional and show them that I no longer had a need for tramadol. And so then they were able to take it off of my medical, my list of medications. I stopped taking the tramadol. Boom, I'm now deployable again. So that's just one example of how you personally, your personal condition can keep you from deploying or can make you non-deployable. Now, how most deployments work, it goes by the unit that you're assigned to. There are things called a deployment cycle. So your unit may be deployed right now. So then if you arrive to your unit, your unit may be be deployed and they have the option to bring you overseas with them to the deployment or depending on how far they're in the deployment, you may not go. You may just stay back, work on what they call a rear detachment and then your unit will come back. That's sometimes if you come within the last month of your unit deployment. because that's what um let's see so that's another way then there are these things called ys pastors w-a-i-s i can't remember what the acronym stands for right now but basically it's one it's a particular unit that is downrange already and they need a particular rank and or mos for whatever reason a soldier died over there or a soldier had to redeploy early or there is an operational need for this particular MOS to plus up. So instead of sending an entire unit, they will request this particular MOS and this particular rank. And so you can volunteer. If you know of the YS pastor, you can volunteer for the YS tasker. So that's another way that you can deploy. And then once your unit comes back from deployment, your unit is temporarily sort of put in a non-deploying status because they need time to reset. Okay. And I I no longer remember how many months the reset period is because it's been been a minute since I deployed. I haven't deployed since 2016. so. So how many times have you deployed? I've deployed three times. I've been to Iraq twice and Jordan once. And what were those kind of deployments like just in general? Like what were your living so, situations like? That kind of thing. So my first two, my very first deployment to Iraq was during the invasion. Mm-hmm. Um, so OEF, you know, shortly after 9-11, I deployed in 2003. So that one, if you think of the movie Jarhead, for anyone who's ever seen the movie Jarhead, <laughs> That, no, seriously, that's what my deployment was like. We had very few resources. Uh, the living conditions were very bare bones, very minimal. We were building our own porta johns. We were drinking. We were assigned four bottles of water a day. And out of those four bottles, you had to drink, wash, and wash, wash your body and wash your clothes. So it was a very rough deployment. And we were living in tents. We were living in tents, sleeping side by side in these 40 to 50 man tents. And your next the person sitting sleeping right next to you as a female could be a guy. It didn't matter. We were just put in these tents by unit. Um, but again, that was for the invasion. <laughs> then my second deployment was also to Iraq. Like I think it was Iraq 
three. I think it was OIF three at the time. Uh, and it was a little better. So now Iraq had been built up. So we weren't there to, we weren't building up Iraq anymore. It was already built up. So we did have these little trailer type buildings that we slept in and, uh, and the conditions were a lot better. Contractors were already there and established. So we, you were going to a very established area. And most of the deployments now to Iraq and Afghanistan are very similar to that because we've been in those countries for so long now versus when I went in 2003, we were, one, we were invading the country. (laughs) (laughs) And then we stayed for a while, so we had to build up bases. So very, very much so roughneck. So again, if you think of Jarhead or like Band of Brothers, that is what we lived in, where we were literally burning feces, our own feces, because we did not have the contractors to come, you know, we didn't have porta potties, let alone contractors to come clean, clean pork giants. Then when I went to Jordan, that one was more of a humanity, it's still called a deployment, but it was more of a peacekeeping, humanitarianish kind of mission. Mm-hmm. So we lived in, in barracks, we lived in hard stand buildings and it was very comfortable. It was very, it was, it was almost like being stationed in Korea. So it didn't feel like a deployment at all. During that deployment, we actually got to go out on the town and see the town and get to learn about Jordan and everything like that. So most people don't even know that I was deployed to Jordan. I just say I lived in Jordan. <laughs> because that's what, even though I was on a military base, it just felt like I lived there. I, I was just doing my regular army job. I was actually a company commander. So I was just doing my army job just in another country that was working with the Jordanian army. So, so how long do those typically last? I know typical in the military is not ever really typical, but generally how long can somebody that's just joining expect a year okay a year yeah now there are very they do have what are called short tours for deployment i guess kind of similar to the navy but that's not the norm normally it's normally if your unit deploys you're going to be gone for a year okay so what has been your favorite and your least favorite part about being a service member either reserve enlisted or officer or all three my favorite part is being able to travel. And some of that just has to do with the amount of money that I'm able, one, to make, two, to save. So uh, I can afford to travel in ways that my civilian counterparts, you know, my civilian friends can't. Uh, the other thing is the army will send you places. <laughs> so again, I went to Jordan. And then while I was in Jordan, for a morale where morale where welfare recreation trip MWR we went to Jerusalem so and it was all paid for by the military you know even my plane ticket to Jordan <laughs> was paid for by the military you know I've been to Kuwait I've been to Iraq those kind of things the military paid for me to do those things so they literally pay for my, my ticket, but then also the income that I make being in the military because you save a lot of money on deployment because you don't pay taxes while you are out of the country. So again, I can save. Then the army sent me to Korea. So I lived in Korea for a year and then I ended up making friends in Korea. So later I just went back to visit my friends in Korea. 
uh, this February, the Army sent me for two weeks to Hawaii to do an exercise. Nice. So I had just paid in December to go to Hawaii <laughs> for vacation. And then I came back. And then in February, they say, hey, we need someone to do this exercise for two weeks. Can you, and it's in Hawaii, can you go? Well, I'm single with no dependents. So yes, I can go. <laughs> I had like a week to get my crap together and go. You know, so that's one of the great things that I like about the military. It, it's one of the things I like the most. Um, I would say the second thing I like the most about the military is all of the diversity, being able to be around people that maybe me growing up in St. Louis, I would have never been exposed to because I probably never would have left my town. You know, but in the military, I get to be around so many different people and so much diversity and learn about other people and other cultures, whether it's the places you visit or it's the people that you work with, because you really spend the majority of your time at work and with these people. So you just learn so much from other people. So I really enjoy about the military. The thing I don't like or the thing I say is my least favorite part is I always say that freedom isn't free. The things, all the great things that from the outside, it looks like all the soldiers and folks in the military enjoy, it really does come at a price that eventually can be taxing. As a young soldier, I didn't worry about it as much. But as an old soldier, and I'm still traveling across the country or traveling the world, there's certain events that I miss because I can't get back to see my particular family members see their milestones. You know, I have plenty of friends who back then we didn't even have FaceTime or smartphones so they just had to find out that their spouses had had children you know had had a child you know not to mention the toll that separation can take on any relationship whether it's a intimate relationship or a friendship so I've lost friends in the middle you know I've lost friends along the way just because the separation did not make the heart grow fonder uh you know my niece I have a 20 year old niece well I've been in the military since before she was born so it's been very hard to have a strong connection with her because I'm physically displaced from her for so long, you know. And then when I come home, I'm home for two to three days. So how well can you really connect? And mind you, again, I'm an older soldier, so this was before technology is what it is. But anytime someone asks me what's the, the one thing, that, that's it right there is how... The comforts that I enjoy in life does come at the price of relationships a lot of times and milestones that you miss. You know, one of my grandparents passed away while I was deployed. And because it wasn't my mother, it was my grandmother, I wasn't allowed to come home. You know, as a basic training company commander, I've had to tell soldiers, like, no, you can't go home to such and such a funeral because you're in range week. And so you're not allowed to come home. It's like, yeah, I get it that that's your brother, but the, per the Army regulation, I don't have to allow you to go if mission dictates that you stay. So that's kind of the thing. Yeah. Not that bad, though. You get used, <laughs> after, over time, you get used to it. So do you have any tips for any new recruits or those that are considering joining and still trying to figure out which branch they think might be best for them? Well, of course, I would say go Army. (laughs) (laughs) Go Army, be Navy. (laughs) No, honestly, though, I would say, and we didn't really get into this, but each branch of the military has different benefits. 
So I honestly would say if someone knows it's in their heart and they have a passion to serve, to really research the benefits of the different branches. That's what I would recommend and see which one fits your needs the best. This, that's one of the great things about the Army too is it makes you grow up and mature very fast. You have to start making decisions on your own because you, you're going to leave mama and daddy behind. So start now, start early, start looking at what decisions you want to make for your life. You don't have to get it right. It doesn't have to be perfect because there's always opportunities to switch later. As, as we've heard from my story, I've changed a lot <laughs> before I figured out that my path was really going to be a chemical officer and that I would, I never imagined I would be in the military for 23 years. So again, with the military period, just find which branch really works for you. Don't, don't go off the misconceptions like I did say like, Oh, I, if I'm in the Air Force, that means I'm going to have to fly. No, that, that's, you're not a pilot. You don't have to. They have more positions in the military than pilots, you know. Um, and just look at some of the educational benefits and look at the advancement kind of stuff, how fast you can move up in the ranks. And also, I highly encourage people to look at the missions of the different branches of military. Yep. So do you have any tips for those that are wanting to join just the Army right now? For those who want to join the Army, uh, actually any branch, honestly, just be prepared. Be prepared for the awakening that you are no longer an individual. Just mentally prepare yourself for that. that that's what I would tell anyone, any new recruit coming in. Mentally prepare yourself to stop thinking like an individual. And it gets frustrating. It really, especially those first two weeks, they're really, really frustrating. And so I also would remind folks that when it starts getting super hard and you're just about ready to crack, just remember that basic training is not the army. It's your basic of training. It is laying the foundation. If you think about a house, the rest of the house looks nothing like the foundation. The foundation is its own very specific thing. The rest of the house is this beautiful, glorious, just masterpiece. No one pays it. After you lay the foundation of a house, no one thinks about it again until it starts to crack. No one else thinks about it. So same thing. Once you're out of basic training... It's a completely different world in the Army, which again is why I I never thought I'd stay 23 years, but yet here I am 23 years later because I I survived basic training. It just, it gets you through that rigor and builds that mental toughness to help you face not being able to go home to your grandfather your grandmother's funeral, or it gets you mentally mentally prepared to get a call that says, hey, I need you to be in Hawaii in two weeks. <laughs> or when I got the call for Jordan, I had 14 days before I was on a plane. I was at home sick when I got the call to go to Jordan and be a company commander. I, but, you know, I had the mental resiliency to be like, okay, all right, I'll go. <laughs> Because the house, the house of the military is so much more beautiful. I mean, ultimately, it's what you make it, but basic training is not the end-all, be-all. It's just the beginning. It's just setting the foundation. Because I see so many kids quit. Their, their mind quits before their body quits. 
And it's so disheartening because they get very short-sighted on basic training. And it's like, no, you could do this. You really could. So I know a lot of kids, um, they're weary of just the armed forces in general because they feel, you know, 17, 18-year-olds, they feel like they couldn't handle somebody, as they say, being up in their grill or constantly yelling at them. Do you have any tips for that? Yeah. Get that mental resiliency going. See, I had a mother that was a yeller. Anyway, <laughs> so it was nothing for me. I actually used to get in trouble because I wouldn't respond. But, but again, basic training was different for me. But I just, I just find my happy place. I'm able to find my happy place a lot faster. And because I've always been able to do that, when I have to stand out in a formation for like a change of command ceremony for an hour and a half, I can just go inside myself and find my happy place really fast. You know, it also helps you emerge as a leader. Um, if you can, if you can endure and withstand the yelling without it affecting you, you know, it'll also help you if, if you're not the one, because a lot of times you'll get the, they like to call it like collective punishment or mass punishment, so to speak. Uh, Again, it's about making you understand that you you are as strong as your weakest link. So if you're not the person that is a weak link, as a leader, the natural leaders will begin to emerge in you. Like, hey, dude, hey, do that. Get your crap together. Like, we're not, we're never going to get anything done if you keep screwing this up. You know, those who catch on faster tend to bring the other ones along with them. And then it becomes harmonious. And again, you learn how to work with people that you may have never worked with before and learn how to build those bonds. And so that's, that's what I would, I would encourage folks that when they go into basic training to really think about that. Think about the fact you can start thinking in a collective mind state and a teamwork type of mind state, you'll, you'll, you'll adapt very fast. And the, the yelling and the screaming won't even phase you. And, and, and slowly and surely, the yelling and screaming taper. I say yelling and screaming, but it really tapers off anyway. Because as people start growing, as the platoon starts growing as a collective, the drill sergeants get less and less authoritarian, authoritative, excuse me, less authoritative and start becoming more and more like mentors. Because they really, they really are there to coach, teach, and mentor you. Just in the beginning, they tend to have to shock you and be in your face. But the faster you guys come together as a collective, the less of the yelling and the screaming goes on. And it becomes more of a, a relationship, a, a mentor-mentee type of relationship, a teacher-to-student te- teacher type of relationship. They're wonderful. I know a lot of students were iffy about that. They thought all of the military was all yelling all the time. No. So. Um, so is there anything else that you'd like to share just about yourself or about the military or anything in general? I would say that one of the things that I also enjoy about the military, again, it's the great equalizer. And I advise people to really take advantage of that and really get to know, um, you know, their brothers and sisters in arms. And it really helps you realize what really matters. Um, Of course, me being an American, I quite enjoy being part of 
the U.S.'s military, but I've worked with people from the other militaries. I've worked with people from the Australian Army, the British Army. Uh, I've, I've been, I have a friend that's an Argentinian uh, officer. And so I still think that we're the greatest military in the world, no matter what. We're not perfect, but we try really doggone hard. And, and I, I enjoy fighting for this country and I am willing to die for this country, for the freedoms of this country. And I, I'm willing to die for any of my brothers and sisters in arms, hands down. It's about the collective and, and the collective freedom that we enjoy as Americans. Very nice. Well, thank you. Um, so that was our interview with Major Kushma, uh, the United States Army uh, chemical officer. And you can uh, send your questions to me and we will do a follow up to this podcast later on once we get some more questions generated from what you, the students, want to know. So I hope you guys enjoyed listening to Major Kushma. She's been in for 23 years. She is an amazing woman, an amazing chemical officer, and she really enjoys the Army life, and she hopes that if that is a path you go down, that you enjoy it just as much as she has and that you find it as fulfilling as she has found it. So again, if you have questions, you can ask me them now, and then once we get a certain amount of questions, we will have a follow-up to this podcast. So... Thank you. It's been great. This is the Drama Llama Classroom Podcast, and this has been Mrs. Demboya and Major Kushma, uh, the United States Army Chemical Officer, and let us know if you have any questions.